What does the Bible have to say about privilege and social good? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin here with Glenn Powell. We're also glad to be joined by Dominique Dubois-Gilliard to talk about his recent book, Subversive Witness, Scripture's Call to Leverage Privilege. Dominique is the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Evangelical Covenant Church. He's served in pastoral ministry in Atlanta, Chicago, and Oakland, and has also written another, another book, Rethinking Incarceration, which won the 2018 InterVarsity Press Reader's Choice Award. Dominique, thanks so much for joining us. Excited to be here. All right. Well, uh, well, let's jump right in. Uh, the first question that we always like to ask our guests is about their personal journey with the Bible. So can you kind of tell us your story of coming to know the scriptures? Yeah. So I'm one of those church kids where there was never a time when I was not in church. Um, and when my earliest moments uh, that I can recall were in the church, um, watch night services on New Year's Eve and uh, multiple church services on Sunday. Um, my uh, my grandfather on my father's side is a pastor, was a pastor during his lifetime. My mother is a pastor and uh, what would be considered a bishop um, in most denominational structures for our, uh, for the Southeastern region of the country. And so, um, yeah, churches in my bones and uh, love for scripture. A love of scripture is really mm-hmm. been something that's been bred within me, within our denominational tradition. Uh, the guiding question is where is it written? And so a real healthy dependence on scripture is something that mm. uh, kind of has been bread within me. That's great. And so um, we were excited when we saw your book, Dominique, because it was so clear to us immediately, um, besides the topic, you know, that you're addressing directly, uh, the roots were so clearly tied to scripture. Yeah. And so, you know, we're a Bible uh, podcast and we're, you know, our big idea is how to help people read and live the Bible well. Um, And so we first thought we'd ask you about the title of your book, Hmm. right? Um, what does it mean? I mean, this title, Subversive Witness, yeah. uh, is it advocating for something or or what's up with the title? Yeah, uh, it is advocating for something. I think, you know, the earliest Christians in Jesus Christ himself um, and us as the hands and feet of Christ in the world today are called to be people who bear witness to our true citizenship, which mm. is not of this world, which is not to flags and nations, but it is to the kingdom. And our countercultural ethic is something that's supposed to subvert the status quo in saying that we don't abide by the logics and the pattern of this world, but we have, we are people who have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and had our minds renewed. And so the way that we engage the world is going to be categorically different because of who and whose we are. And so when you read the book, that'll be a phrase that I use a lot, who and whose we are, because um, I think it matters that we are Christ's followers and Jesus gives us uh, the new commandment and says that the world will know that we belong to him by how we choose to love one another. And it's that kind of countercultural ethic, that kind of Christocentric ethic that really should 
be why the world knows that we belong to Jesus. And so uh, the subversive piece is like, you know, Jesus comes into the most powerful worldly empire at that time that the world had ever known. And he says, mm. actually, Caesar's not Lord. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, right. and so it's yeah. a, that's a subversive <laughs> kind of way yeah. of engaging. And I think as those who uh, are called to follow the the ethic and life and witness of our crucified and resurrected savior, we are supposed to kind of carry on that kind of pattern of living uh, in a way that proclaims the coming kingdom. Um, Yeah, that's great. It looks like clearly both words in the title are carrying a lot of theological weight, right? I mean, they're both essential to what your message is there. So that's wonderful. And, you know, like Glenn mentioned just now, uh, our, our podcast tries to, on, on each episode, unpack some element of what we think it means to read and live the Bible well. And I think for some of our listeners, kind of at first glance, maybe, um, the connection between Scripture and the topic of your book and what you're advocating for your, in your book can be um, loose at best, maybe. Um, but once you yep. actually dive into yep. your book and start reading it, <laughs> You see how strong the connection is throughout the entirety of scripture. Um, so can you talk about that just a little bit? Which is something I, I just want to. Yeah. 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 I, I, you know, for me. Um, this conversation is critically important because I think a lot of people can prejudge the title and kind of come away mm. with what they think that I'm going to be doing. But at the yeah. heart of what I'm trying to do is to try to help help the body read the Bible more faithfully mm. and to yeah. live, live mm. in response to what the scriptures actually call us to. Um, and I know privilege is something that, you know, for some people has been kind of decried as an issue that, you know, the gospel has no real concern with and right. a social topic that we, sh- you know, that's a distraction to the gospel. Um, yep. But the truth is that scripture repetitively brings this issue before us and actually mm. gives us a blueprint for how we navigate the complexities of a society that is riddled with privilege and helps us to understand. Uh, and this is one of the real keys between how I thought about this conversation and a lot of other texts have, you know, privilege is not something about condemnation. Um, it's mm. really about us trying to do a, a sober assessment of our lives and looking at how we can live our lives in total, give our lives in totality to Jesus and how we can leverage all that we have been entrusted with for what our missional purpose is. And I believed, I try to make it very simple. Our missional purpose is to make God's name known and love shown throughout the world. Mm. And how are we using everything at our expense to do that? That's really the question that I'm trying to reckon with within this book. It's not about, oh, you are a personal privilege, so therefore you're a bad person or therefore, mm-hmm. you know, it's everything is about, you know, the ways in which you are living selfishly and not for God. The question, once we really get down to it around if privilege, once we get beyond the question of if privilege is real, which, you know, we can spend some time doing that if we need to. The real question is, what are, you, what are Christians called to do with it? 
And that's really what I wanted to grapple with. And I wanted to grapple with it, not with sociology, not just with history alone, but I wanted to grapple with it within the biblical text. And there are text after text after text that invite us to grapple with that. And I wanted to kind of really root this conversation squarely within the biblical text as the lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Wow. I love that. I mean, I think... I think a lot of Christians, they get their framework, right, for thinking about societal issues, like from the culture. Yep. So because the culture has a certain framework, they adopt one side or the other, you know, wherever you're at, and they think, okay, I have to choose like one of these frameworks, ways of thinking about these words, like privilege, right? Like all the other topics you're talking about in your book. And I just, I think it's a beautiful thing, Dominique, how um, your book says, wait, we're followers of Christ, right? Let's frame this according to the story we have that includes the story of Jesus and others. And lo and behold, privilege is there in those stories. It's amazing, yeah, right? And it gives us a whole—I love it because it just comes from a different point of view and says, people of God, there's a new way to think about these topics. And it comes from our own story, our scriptures. And so I just think it derails— so much of the conversation that we can get drawn into if we allow the world to tell us how to think about these things versus our own story. So that's what I I find your book doing. Does that does that sound right? It does. And I it sounds right on what I was trying to do. And I really wanted to help us to see the missional and the evangelistic possibilities that Mm. are cut off when we don't really soberly sit with this question in this conversation. Um, And I really like to point to, you know, like a text like Acts 6, 1 through 7. It's a beautiful example of a kind of where privilege has crept into the community and it's creating this kind Mm. of disconnect and there are certain people who are being neglected. And in the church's response, you see the church soberly hear the complaint that's raised And they are willing to actually sit with it and do a thorough examination. And they come Mm -hmm. back and they affirm that the critique was warranted. And Mm -hmm. then if the text says because of their response, the gospel expanded in their local context, but also because of their maturity in Christ and their recalibration of the leadership table, they ultimately reconstruct a new council, which lead to the first evangelistic transformations for uh, people within the Gentile world down the line. And so there is this critical connection between mm. our, our maturity in Christ, our ability to soberly sit with ourselves in humility, and then to be able to declare the gospel in a way that the world sees that something new is possible. The world sees that there's goodness in this news about Jesus Christ, that we don't Mm. have to be so self-defensive that we can never say, hey, you know, we missed the mark. There is grace. There is a possibility to acknowledge our shortcomings, to commit to doing better and to turn away and actually rejoin our neighbor in right relationship. So it's just a beautiful, beautiful example. Yeah. It is. I love you know, that story kind of opened your book. And I, I just think it's such a, it's such a cool thing because sometimes I think we think of the Christian life is like, yeah, I had my repentance moment when I became a follower of Jesus. Right. And it was a one-time thing and I've made the turn. And, and then we, we sometimes, I mean, nobody would say this, but we kind of feel like, oh yeah, we can go back to being defensive again when somebody says something is wrong um, in the world or you know, that I'm involved in that somehow. And instead, it's just a continuing life of being open to the truth 
And as you mentioned, that story just brings that out. And it led to a major breakthrough in yeah. the spread of the gospel. It's just yeah. amazing. Locally and in ways that they could have never seen or known. And that's what it that's what it is. It's this constant step towards faithfulness and trusting ourselves to the spirit, knowing that the spirit will bless and multiply our offerings when we submit ourselves to kind of the gospel truth. And so it, it's yeah. this beautiful, beautiful story. Yeah. And the other yeah. thing is, it it's like we read so much through the lens of, well, individual people do individual things wrong, but there's this other dynamic of there were two ethnic groups, right? I mean, yep. there were there were there was a Hebrew group and there was a Hellenistic group, and that was at the heart of the story, yep. and it's in the scriptures, and so it's right there. It's not a some foreign import, right? It's the story is telling us to think this way. Exactly. Yeah. I just had a, actually kind of a quick table setting question, I guess. Um, I, I'm wondering if it would be helpful right before we jump, jump into the text itself, if you could kind of just define privilege up front. I think a lot of people have heard that word being used, um, especially you mm. know, in the context of white privilege and then kind of defenses go up and people are stop listening and that sort of thing. Can you, before we jump into the, the stories themselves, just kind of define the word privilege for the audience? Yeah. So for me, having privilege is not a sin. Though uh, many of the privileges that we are familiar with in society emerge from sin. What is sinful is exploiting privilege for our own advantage and turning a blind eye to the suffering of our neighbors in order to sustain it. Um, Privilege really is something that uh, is rooted in uh, the negation of the biblical truth that we see in the first pages of scripture, uh, where we see the Mago Dei, the image of God kind of reference where it says that all people are equitably made in the image of God. Uh, Privilege is rooted in this worldview that ultimately says that some people are more reflective of the divine image than others. And it has created this kind of sliding scale of humanity where certain people are treated with more humanity, dignity, and civility than others because of oftentimes uh, the way that they were created, uh, be it their gender, be it their race, be it their uh, mental cognition, be it their physical abilities. Uh, Then there are other elements of it, be it their class, be it their education. And and it leads to this differential treatment that uh, affirms the divine image in some more than others. And so this conversation about privilege is first naming that that is the truth in our mm, world. Mm. And then second, naming that that is a sinful reality that is not reflective of God's intent and will for, our, for humanity. And then third, it's really calling us to press into Isaiah 58, where we're called to be repairs of the breach, to say, like, this is one of the breaches that exist in our world. Mm. And if we're ever going to be people who are going to repair the breach, we have to be able to see, name, and then we can start to respond to the breach. And so privilege is just an acknowledgement that systems and structures have been perverted by sin and have distorted the way that we see one another, engage with one another, and the way that certain people are treated because of how they were created by God. And that is not reflective of uh, the kingdom. 
And so as people who are mm. working towards ushering in the coming kingdom, we are people who are called to respond to that brokenness as we see it. Yeah. And Dominic, I found the discussion in the book so interesting about how this privilege can be multi-layered, right? There's different yeah. kinds of privilege, right? You can be privileged in some ways, but not in others, depending on all those categories that you just mentioned. And I just think it provides a lens, right, to see the world more clearly, to see how sin infiltrates um, individual hearts, but like the way society is built and structured. And there were like, you can be like multi-level privileged, Yep. Right. Or not. And it can and, be and divergent. That, yeah. Yep. Like, yeah. Like for it's me. So fascinating. Like for me. Like for me, an African American man, racially, I am not in the privileged category, but as a male, I am in the privileged mm. category. And so if I can't live with the complexity of the ways in which society disadvantages me in some ways and advantages me in other ways, then mm -hmm. how am I ever going to be able to soberly see and understand what it means to truly love my neighbors? And so this is this is, you know, the conversation of privilege really becomes a critical corrective course corrective for us in regards to how we see and engage uh, our neighbors in a way that is really loving and really reflective of kingdom ethics. Mm. And so if I can't ever see that. There are ways in which the world, society, systems privilege me because of my maleness and in a way that discriminates against my sisters, then I'm never going to be a part of actually reconciling the gender gap that exists in so many of our institutions and within so many avenues of society. Uh, like I have to be able to see that and then I have to be able to turn to my sisters in a learning posture and to say, what does it look like for me to actually subversively use the access that I have into tables and spaces of influence mm. and power mm -hmm. as a male to actually bring a corrective to the imbalance that currently exists? And so there, there has to be this humility, like there has to be this way once I have once I see the disparity that exists, then the love of Christ should drive me to humbly engage with my neighbor in a way that says, I realize that this is not what it's supposed to be. How do I use the access that I have, not the way that the world predicts that I'm going to, which mm -hmm. is just to grab all the goodies for myself mm -hmm. and to actually make my life better or right. to even to mm -hmm. distance myself from the pain of the world. But I'm actually going to use my access to actually subversively enter into the pain of the world as an advocate, as an ambassador of reconciliation to bridge the gaps that exist. Wow. It's beautiful. It's a vision, the vision of the positive. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let's get to the book itself. So in your book, you have like six major biblical stories, right, of how privilege was leveraged for the greater good of the reign of God, bringing more light and more life into the world um, in all these stories. It would be wonderful to talk about all of those, but we probably <laughs> don't have time today. So let me just say, to tell people, our, our Bible audience, right, people who love and want to learn more about the Bible, I would just say, you know, you need to get this book because these stories are directly out of the biblical text in in like good and solid ways. And so it's an important part of reading the Bible well and living it well to understand how this works. And those chapters, I mean, that's the heart and soul of your book is yep. these biblical stories. So um, in the interest of time, 
I thought we would, and by the way, the, the stories are, are, let me just mention them to our audience. Um, Pharaoh's daughter, Esther, Moses, Paul and Silas together, and then Jesus and Zacchaeus. So covering uh, the first and the New Testament. And so let's zero in on two today, Dominique. I thought we would talk for a bit about Pharaoh's daughter in that yeah. situation at the beginning of the book of Exodus, and then the story of Jesus. I mean, this is yeah. Lent. And it's yep. all about following Jesus and taking up our cross in the in the mode of Jesus. So I thought those two would be good ones to talk about. So tell us about the story briefly of Pharaoh's daughter and, and what's going on there. Yeah, so in Exodus 1, 6 through 2, 10, you have the story of Moses being born into the world. And you see Moses' mom finding herself in this impossible situation. She's living in a society in an Egyptian empire that finds all of its flourishing and prosperity rooted in the dehumanization and uh, enslavement of their Hebrew neighbors. Um, and Pharaoh is so anxious about sustaining the prosperity mm. of his empire that he starts to double down and create all of these really tyrannical laws around how they're supposed to monitor and subjugate the Hebrew people. One of the laws that ultimately comes out is that every Hebrew boy must be put to death. Um, as we find that that law comes out, we find that Moses's mom is pregnant with Moses and she's trying to figure out how does she navigate such a law when her precious child in her womb is a Hebrew boy. And she knows that upon his birth, he's supposed to be put to death. It gets to the point the text tells us that Pharaoh commissions the Hebrew midwives and gives them a direct order. Mm. And so in this context, uh, Moses' mom is really trying to discern what she's supposed to do. Uh, is she supposed to follow the law and put her precious child to death? Or is she supposed to break the law and ultimately preserve the life of her precious child? Ultimately, the spirit compels Pharaoh, I mean, Moses' mom, to break the law and to fugitively harbor him as long as she can. And then ultimately, she realizes that she's come up to her own human limitations and there's nothing else she can do. She ultimately has to entrust Moses to this Holy Spirit. And she creates a makeshift basket, puts him in the water, and I'm sure prays over him before she sends him out. <laughs> right. uh, because anything could have happened to Moses. Moses yeah. could have tipped over and drowned. Moses could have been eaten by a sea creature. And But what ultimately happens is he goes to the place where you and I would predict is the absolute worst place that he could go to. And the basket floats all the way to the banks of Pharaoh's house, which is the household in which the degree comes from that he wow. must be put to death. Yeah. And this is where you start to see the transformative power of the spirit. Mm. And, and Moses's daughter is out there on the banks of the river. She sees the, the basket. She orders her attendant to go get it, retrieve it. And then she goes to the basket and opens it up. And when she opens up the basket, she says, essentially, this is one of those Hebrew babies, which mm. to us should signal she has a tape going on in her mind telling her what she's supposed to do when she sees or encounters a Hebrew yes. baby boy. Yes. And so immediately she knows somebody has broken the law. Like this child should not exist because he was supposed to be put to death upon birth. But when she opens the basket and looks into Moses's eyes, 
she doesn't see what she expects to see. She doesn't see an expendable child. She doesn't see uh, somebody who is supposed to be dead. She sees somebody whose humanity is connected to her own. And instead of doing what her father had indoctrinated her to do, which Mm. is to carry on this family lineage of bigotry and exclusion, she ultimately sees herself as connected to the other. And in doing so, she's compelled to work against her quote unquote own self-interest, the interest of the Egyptian empire. And she ultimately acts to save Moses's life. And in doing so, she puts her father's reputation on the line Mm -hmm. because his word gets out that Pharaoh's own daughter won't even listen to him. (laughs) Imagine how much respect people are going to have for him and his legislation going forward. Um, And so, you know, there there's some theorizing that goes into it. But I mean, if we really take seriously the human emotionality and the fragility of Mm. kind of tyrannical leaders, there's a good chance that she could have been written out of the wheel kicked out of the house for this kind of subversive act. Um, But instead of thinking about all that it could cost her, she thinks about what it would cost Moses if she doesn't act on his behalf. And she enters in with reckless abandon and love. And she ultimately saves his life, but not just in a token way, because later on she brings Moses into Pharaoh's house and raises him as her own child. It's just this beautiful story of the power of the gospel to transform lives and to break generational cycles of bigotry. Um, And lastly, I'll just say, you know, historically in the African-American community, uh, the spiritual weight in the water has been such a profoundly uh, transformative, impactful uh, song for us. But I like to look at this story as majority cultures. Uh, manifestation of wade in the water. When Pharaoh's <laughs> yeah, daughter starts to yeah. wade into the water, wow. the spirit starts to trouble the waters of belonging yeah. and it gives her a new vision and a new revelation of a gospel truth which says that there are no expendable people in the kingdom of God, that we all belong to one another and our flourishing is inherently connected to one another's flourishing. I love this passage. Yeah, it's amazing. And the reverberations, right? I mean, she brings him into Pharaoh's household. So talk about a place of privilege, which Moses then becomes like he grows up in a place of privilege. So the reverberations of her action lead to a further leveraging of privilege when Moses becomes the liberator of the Hebrew people. It just shows you kind of how the kingdom works, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I always love to say, though, I want to underscore, uh, Pharaoh's daughter's faithfulness really is dependent upon Moses's mother's faithfulness, Mm. because if she wasn't faithful enough to to follow the spirit into uncharted territory, to be willing to break the law, Pharaoh's daughter doesn't even have the chance to actually engage in the way that she does. And so it's this beautiful story about the interconnectedness of how one act of faithfulness prompts another in ways that we can never know or see. And so we can't be so, you know, caught up with the the big picture, because sometimes we're not even going to be able to see the fullness of it. We have to do what the spirit compels us to do and trust that the spirit is also working and orchestrating things that we might not be able to see come into full completion. Wow. And Dominic, I have to say, I loved in that chapter how you said, look, um, who was Pharaoh afraid of? He was afraid of men, right? He said, kill the Hebrew boys, not the Hebrew girls. So there's there's another dynamic. It's Egyptians and Hebrews, but it's also men and women 
and his action is undone by a series of women. It's 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 crazy yeah. how how this subtle detail is in there, but there's not one man in that whole passage that does what's faithful to yeah. uh, kind of what the spirit is compelling them to. But it's the Hebrew midwives, then it's Moses's mm. mom, then it's Moses's sister, and then it's Pharaoh's daughter, all undoing right, right. kind of this stronghold mm. that Pharaoh is kind of built, and he only the only threat he can perceive is that another man is going to take Correct, him down right but the spirit works profoundly through these sisters wow wow that i mean that story just on so many levels right yeah. that's that's just a beautiful thing and that's what these yeah. stories i mean the other stories like we don't have time for them all but that's what these stories do they find these other like deeper levels and it's it's like good biblical study it's like the closer yeah. you read the text the more you see these truths coming out about how God's spirit works um, in, in a very harsh, real world of privilege and power and oppression and pain. And, and, and God is working in these surprising ways. And that's what we have to learn from this. So um, Jesus is kind of the ultimate one to leverage privilege, right? Yeah. I mean, how does yeah. this story fit into your book? Yeah, well, Jesus kind of creates a pivot for us um, in, in that he expands the conversation because it's not just about leveraging. Sometimes we're mm. called to abandon privilege uh, for the gospel. And, and we see Jesus model this abandonment in ways that become instructive for us. And so, you know, Jesus uh, takes on flesh um, in the incarnation, becomes fully God and fully man, uh, has the power to grasp at equality with the father of Philippians 2. Mm. And he chooses not to do that. And he he chooses to self self-deny and to to lower himself um and in doing so ultimately makes reconciliation a possibility for all of humanity um he he doesn't look out for his own self-interest mm. he's not interested in using his power to avoid suffering to uh to make his life uh plushion uh pristine Jesus enters in and takes the posture of a servant and ultimately uh, denies uh, the, the temptation to use privilege for selfish gain, but sees the missional component of privilege, which is to ultimately realize that uh, what we have been entrusted with is to advance the kingdom and to sacrificially love our neighbors. And Jesus models that. Uh, throughout his lifetime, um, most explicitly in Philippians 2 in the Christ hymn mm. in some ways, but then also in the temptation in the desert uh, when he's led into the wilderness by the spirit and explicitly tempted by Satan. And he, he gives us this model that there is constantly going to be this temptation when the conversation of privilege arises. And the temptation is always going to be to think that privilege is something that we are supposed to grasp at and to exploit for our own personal yeah, good or yeah. the good of our biological families only and to miss out on the opportunity to see the missional possibilities of privilege and how it creates unique opportunities for the, to make God's name known and love shown throughout the world and to inaugurate, uh, uh, to further the inaugurated kingdom that Jesus uh, commissions in Luke 4. 
Wow. Yeah. Um, Michael Gorman, who's a New Testament scholar, I know you quote him in the book. And I, th- I think it's where um, he has this phrase, you know, following Jesus in his descent into greatness. Right. It's this idea like yeah. the, the good of the kingdom comes from ultimately the self-denial of our leader, our savior. And we're car- called to take up our own cross and follow him. And um, I love how the temptation stories tie into that same Christ hymn from Philippians about, yeah. um, look, this was, an, this was this like one time thing Jesus did. And then he, then he becomes human. And then the hymn says he became human and then he was willing to suffer. And then he was willing to die, even death on a cross. And, you know, the journey, you realize it started at his temptations where he's like, hey, you know, you don't have to go this route. There's another route for you. And you can you can enjoy this power, the privilege, the angels at your call, the kingdoms of the world and tying that to our own reality and our own temptations. uh, It just seems profound to me. Yeah, it's it's all of that. But then it's also Matthew 25, mm. um, 31 through 46, where Jesus talks about the least of these. And I think one of the things that we've missed in the way that we've read that text are two. There's two things. One, I think that text has been interpreted in a ton of ways. But one of the things that text is really trying to elucidate is the power of proximity. Mm. When we are not in proximity and in relationship with those who suffer in the ways that that text lift up, we're going to miss out on some of the urgency and also some of the missional targets of the gospel. Uh, We are not Mm. going to understand uh, what it means to really walk alongside and love our neighbors who are, you know, sick, who are impoverished, who are imprisoned, who are, we're not going to, there's going to be too many other ways to explain away suffering that we're not going to be able to demonstrate the heart of God in relationship with those who suffer in those ways. Mm. Um, but the other piece of it is, is these aren't just abject categories that Jesus is naming. These are all marginalities that Jesus himself endured mm. in the flesh. Mm. And so Jesus literally, it's not a metaphoric, right. whatever you do to the least of these, yeah. you do unto me. Right. Jesus is saying, these are all categories that I embodied. Mm. These are realities that i personally know and so when we talk about jesus as emmanuel god with us like god really with those who embody these realities today as someone who actually endured them and it's really this urgency to say like when we talk about the story of the good samaritan or we talk about different passages about how we are supposed to love our neighbor as we love ourselves like that starts to shift how we read those texts and what it means to really faithfully live out the gospel in our day and time. And so I just really love that Jesus doesn't just randomly pull out categories, but he's trying to help us do a a deeper Christology, a deeper understanding of who Jesus himself was and kind of the the realities that he embodied in his day and time. Wow, it's not just ethics, it's Christology, right? Basic, that's great, wow. So I want to talk a little bit uh, real quick just about what you think about the role of individualism in this whole conversation. You know, part of our shtick here at the Institute for Bible Reading is the importance of reading and discussing scripture in community to kind of push back against the individualism that we're all used to. Um, So kind of two questions here. One, how do you think the emphasis on individualism and individuals in isolation 
blinds us to some of the realities in scripture that are communal, like structural sin, generational yeah. sin, that sort of thing. And then, uh, then the second question is what, what benefit benefits do you think would come from reading and discussing scripture? Kind of like you said, in that physical proximity, that relationship with people that are in suffering in different levels of privilege one way or another, and kind of having that experience around scripture in more of a diverse environment versus just reading and talking about scripture with people that are just like us. Yeah. So I'm going to answer them in reverse and you might have to, you might have to <laughs> remind me of the first question sure. again, after I go through this, this first answer. Um, yeah. So the second question, I love it because it is, you know, we are supposed to read the text in community and yeah. in doing so we are allowed the grace of having some of our blind spots mm. um, named and we are able through relationship to do a deeper exploration of what we might be missing in the text because of our social location, because of the privileges that we might enjoy that other people might not actually have. And they are able to name things for us or see things in the text that we might have missed. So to give a very mm-hmm. tangible example of this, I, I went through Exodus 1, 6 through 2, 10 a little bit earlier. Um, but I've heard that text taught on and preached on since I was a, you know, four-year-old. Um, but I had never had anybody really invite me to sit with the weight of the decision that Moses's mom has to make. How do you believe that the gospel is good news when you live in a society that says you must put your child to death just because of his ethnicity and his gender? Like, that's a crazy quandary that she finds herself in. And she has to, she, the only choices left before her is to become a lawbreaker mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or to actually be complicit with the death of her son. Like that's an impossible situation. Mm-hmm. And scripture is naming that situation because it's trying to help us see that this is what it means to live in a fallen world. That certain people have their backs against the wall, to quote Howard Thurman, in a very consistent way, and they are left with these impossible situation, uh, impossible decisions. Like there is no decision that she can make in that impossible situation where she just comes out ethically just feeling great about everything. Right, <laughs> like, right, it's, right. It's just, and and I think when we don't stop to see that the text is inviting us to realize the impact of sin on our world and the decisions that some of our neighbors are forced to make, then we're going to miss out on, again, what it means to truly love our neighbors and what it means to truly understand the circumstances that they find themselves up against. Um, Another quick example Mm. I want to give that kind of does the same thing is from the story of Paul and Silas in Acts 16. Um, And it's this passage where you know, I think the conversation of privilege can feel like, uh, I don't know about that. I'm not quite sure that this is, you know, something that really is true or biblically rooted. But I really love how, you know, there's this big broader story uh, that's going on. But essentially, Paul and Silas get misidentified uh, by the men who are bringing charges against them intentionally. And they are uh, depicted as Jews when they are actually Roman citizens. And the text tells us that 
the magistrates were unconcerned about their suffering and their mistreatment and basically the denial of justice mm. that they received until they realized that they were Roman citizens. Right. You see, that's what privilege is all about. It's about I don't care about the fact that I mistreat somebody until I realize wow. that they have a certain status, wow. they have a certain a certain connection to someone else, or they have a certain kind yeah. of uh, class background. It has to be some kind of connection or identification or status to make me change my posture mm. when I realize that I've done wrong to them. Instead of the fact that I, I, I just feel convicted that I've treated another human being, right. another person right. made in the image of God wrongly, it's only when I realize that they have a certain status or a certain connection that I feel convicted. That's at the core of privilege. That's yeah. what I'm trying to raise yeah. up and name. Yeah. And that's a sinful reality that's not reflective of God's will. Yeah, And, this and therefore, we as Christians can't be content with those kind of realities. Yeah. And the theme of the Imagio Day, right, right through your book. Like it's constantly yeah. the thing that undoes the brokenness of the world in in all these ways, um, is to just fundamentally remember the creation story about everybody imaging God. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Al 100%. Alex. What was that first question again, Alex? Yeah. So just thinking through the fact that the waters that we swim in are individualism, individualistic. Um, and how that can blind us to some of the things that are going on sort of beneath the surface of the Bible text or um, in the background, things like uh, structural sin, generational sin, kind of communal realities, I think, that were more at the forefront in that time, but things that weren't just not as well versed in. Yeah, yeah. So I think the individualism is something that really does hinder uh, that that collective reading like scripture is something that's written to communities it's written to you know oftentimes we think about the epistles they're written to a congregation it's not you know this individualistic kind of uh re reading and response to the text and so i think you know when i think about record individualism in the way particularly in the u.s where i live um has been such a foundational building block of the way in which so many of us have been formed and shaped to think, I think about all of the ways that diametrically opposes a, a gospel ethic of collective uh, collectivism that we really see, uh, again, starting in Philippians 2, where it tells us that we're not supposed to um, do anything out of our own self-interest but we're actually supposed to put the interest of others before ourselves. Mm. And then going back into a text like Jeremiah uh, that tells us that we are supposed to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city, because when we seek the flourishing of others, that's where our flourishing is found, not in this logic of rugged individualism or pulling oneself up by their bootstraps or kind of this isolationism, but it's ultimately helping us to understand the biblical truth that we are blessed to be a blessing um, and that the blessings that have been entrusted to us are not just for us, but they meant, they're meant to flow through mm. us for the betterment of the collective. And so there are these ways in which rugged individualism really blinds us to the communal ethic of scripture and the gospel. And one of the ways I really like to talk about this is uh, through the, the theological lens of baptism. Mm. Um, and so, you know, 
the baptismal waters um, incorporate us into a new family, a new mission, and a new purpose. And in doing so, uh, it diametrically opposes, again, this kind of mantra that's so alive and well in the U.S. that tells us that blood is thicker than water. Mm. Well, the, the biblical truth is that the baptismal waters are thicker than our ancestral bloodlines. Wow. And it's baptism wow. that ultimately brings us into a new way of believing and belonging uh, in the world that helps us to see that we are interconnected, that ultimately my flourishing is tied up with your flourishing mm-hmm. and our flourishing is tied up with Glenn's flourishing and Glenn's flourishing is tied up with the flourishing of our neighbors with physical disabilities and mental disabilities and those who are incarcerated and, you know, refugees. And until we understand that the baptismal waters call us into a new ethic, a new way of seeing and relating to one another so that there are no more expendable people, there are no more second-class citizens, that we are all equitably made in the image of God and we're called and commissioned to protect the humanity and the integrity of one another's lives and flourishing so that not some of God's children can flourish, but we can all prosper together. Like that kind of ethic is curtailed and that kind of reading of scripture is curtailed by individualism and the ways in which we're socialized to think that this world is about making our lives and our biological families' lives better, even if it means turning a blind eye to the suffering of those around us. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just not, yeah. that's not a principle of the inbreaking kingdom. Right. And it's trying to commission us into a new way of being. And so we need one another to do that. And lastly, I'll just say it this way, you know, um, one of the ways I think we've missed this is when we talk about uh, texts like uh, Galatians uh, 3.28 uh, and we talk about, you know, the way that we've historically interpreted, you know, there's no more male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, uh, for all are one in Christ Jesus. I think historically we've we've read that one in Christ Jesus as a negation mm. of these, these categories that are named prior to it. But really what's going on, Paul is trying to say that these were power dynamics that were so thoroughly entrenched in society that they dictated how people would interact with one another and see one another and treat them and value one another. And he's ultimately trying to say, if we're really going to ever be what we're commissioned to be as the people of God, this countercultural community, the signpost of the kingdom, then we have to be a place where those categories don't hold that same kind of power in our communion together as the people of God, as they do in the outside world. But what I think is that text has been misread to Mm. say is that we don't talk about those things anymore once we come into the body of Christ, because all we focus on is our unity in Jesus. But the truth is that text is not calling us into conformity, uh, uniformity. It's calling us into unity in the midst of our diversity. There you go. Which is a much harder right, thing to pursue right. than saying, like, everybody check all that stuff at the door yeah. and let's try to, you know, foster this kind of uh, uniformity. Uniformity is not the, the outcome of that text. Unity in the midst of our diversity is what Paul is trying to call yeah. us to. And that can only happen when we resist the the temptation of rugged individualism and move towards this collective freedom and liberation that can only be found in Christ. 
and only be found when we take seriously the intentionality and the meticulous way in which God created us different and mm. diverse on purpose. Mm. Diversity <laughs> is not an accident. Right, right, <laughs> Diversity right. is something that is affirmed from Genesis to Revelation. Yep. And we see in Revelation 7, 9, that diversity does not die out. Right, <laughs> it's all right. peoples, all tribes, all right, languages standing the around end. the throne. Yeah. And so it's unity in the midst of our diversity, not unity at the sake of diversity. Right. And that's the big thing that I think we've missed as we try to pursue the inbreaking yeah. kingdom. Um and so I think that's that that, that connects directly to your question around individualism mm-hmm. and why we need to have this communal reading of the text so we can understand how we do this together because our flourishing is ultimately interdependent and shalom is only a possibility when we come into this revelation of the biblical truth that we do belong to one another. Wow. Yeah, it's not a disembodied unity we seek, right? It's full embodiment with everything that that means, right? All those categories. Yep. Well, we're about out of time, Dominique, so we'll have to stop it here. But I just want to I want to thank you for writing this book. I think it's a gift to the church mm. in a time where these topics are swirling around, right? They're swirling around school board meetings and very tangible local ways and in big national ways. Um, so it was just a gift to the church to hear this deeply biblical perspective that you took the time to write about. And I just want to thank you for that and hope that uh, it spreads far and wide because it's deeply biblical content and so good. It's, it, as you mentioned at the beginning, right? It's not about shaming or condemning people, right? Truth-telling, Christians are not afraid of truth-telling. We know that's the foundation of our new life, is telling the truth about who we were before Christ. So we're not afraid of the truth, and we need to be constant learners. But the vision that is the positive side of this is where you're headed in the book. And uh, again, just thank you for for doing it. Thank you for having me. And I, I want to leave us with uh, a few words from our brother in Christ, Brian Stevenson, mm-hmm. who says, you know, and I quote him in the book, he says, I believe in truth and reconciliation, but I also know that those two things are sequential. Uh, mm-hmm. There's truth that makes way for reconciliation yeah. to become a possible, a, a tangible reality in our right. lives. And I really do believe that gospel truth is the thing that can, the only thing that can lead us towards a reconciled reality. Mm, that's good. All right. Well, of course we encourage all of our listeners to go check out subversive witness and begin having some of these really important conversations within your own communities and in your own contexts. I'll go ahead and, of course, leave a, a link to the, the book in the show notes. As always, the Bible Reset podcast is brought to you by Changemakers, our community of donors who give monthly gifts of any amount to help us create resources that change the way people read the Bible. If you appreciate this podcast and you'd like to support our work, you can learn more at instituteforbiblereading.org slash changemakers. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. <laughs>